We've got two readings this evening. The first one's from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Our second reading is from Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is God's word. Thank you. Uh, evening, evening, one and all. Um, let me add my uh, welcome to, uh, to that of uh, Pete's. And uh, again, say to this then, the, tonight, the last night in uh, a topical series, uh, so from next week back to our normal routine, as it were, of um, working our way through books of the Bible, teaching our way through uh, books as, as God has written them. Uh, this is the last of the four weeks then, thinking topically, uh, which some, uh, some enjoy, uh, some dislike that. Just run with it. It's only tonight. Um, and then we're back to normal routine. Um, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, is really what we've been thinking about. Let me lead us in prayer, and then uh, we'll jump on him. Our great God and Father, we continue to give you thanks that you tell us who we are. You create us in your image, 
and you give us purpose so we're not adrift on an ocean of bewilderment and wondering what we're meant to be doing and, and who we are. Thank you. So, Father, again, we pray that you would shape us by your word to be the people you want us to be, which is for your glory and is for our good, our happiness, our contentment, our joy. For you love us to know such things. Teach us again, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we called this series, well, I say we, um, me, I've uh, called this series uh, True to Self because um, it's a very modern idea, the idea that you've got to be uh, true to yourself, uh, follow your own dreams. Um, but uh, actually, the Bible defines things slightly differently. To be true to self in the scriptures is to know that you've been created in God's image, that he gives you identity rather than you having to create it for yourself. And that is wonderfully liberating. Uh, being permanently behind the curve of uh, culture. Uh, the other day, my family and I watched uh, The Maze Runner, which is sort of, sort of mediocre uh, as a film, sort of there's this sort of current genre for teenage dystopian novels. It's all miserable in the future. Uh, say things like that and The Hunger Games and Divergent, etc. Anyway, we watched this film. If you've seen the film or read the book, uh, the, so it starts off this, this... Anyone seen it? It is quite missable, actually. Apparently, the book is much better. But um, let, me, let me save you two hours of your life. The, uh, there's this boy then, about 18, 20 years old, something like that. He wakes up. Uh, he's in a cage. He emerges. And he's got no idea in this sort of area. He's got no idea who he is, how he got there, who these other people are what his purpose is, who can he trust, who's on his side, who wants to kill him. He knows nothing. And he freaks out, as you would do. Uh, this is a massive dose of amnesia. Who am I? What is my purpose? What am I doing? Uh, and unlike Jason Bourne, who very quickly discovers, oh, I can kill people with my hands. That's quite a useful skill. Uh, it takes much longer for him to work out, oh, okay, uh, my name is Thomas. Uh, I'm here to solve a problem of a maze. I can trust these people. I can't trust those people. Uh, she's kind of nice. I can talk to her in my head. That's weird. Uh, and um, that's the, that's the, there it is. And they all go to happily ever after in the end, sort of. Um, that saves you time. But um, it struck me just watching this thing. Yeah, of course. Do you mean plonked down? Who am I? I don't know. What am I here for? I don't know. That is bewildering. And yet that's the 21st century, which says, you discover who you are. You be anything you want. And any secular observer will tell you that anxiety and depression, particularly in young people, is going through the roof. Absolutely through the roof. Because we're not meant to be just cast adrift on an ocean of senselessness. It's wonderfully liberating and healthy for us as humans, for God to say, here you are, you're made in my image. This is how I want you to live. It is for our good. So, so much angst. And so we've said so far that uh, God is the Father who gives us our identity. We don't create it ourselves. We're made in the image of God, which we said week one, we're made for glory, to enjoy his glory and to share it. Uh, secondly, we're made for intimacy, hardwired into us, hardwired into us is the desire for relationship, openness, transparency, intimacy with some. 
we're made for genders, we thought last week. Uh, and this week, I want to think a little bit that we're remade in God's image. That is the Christian. We're transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ for our good. We're remade in the image of God. And to put it in simple terms, what I'm going to keep on saying tonight from different perspectives is that the Christian identity is found in self-giving. So I was going to give the title, Made for Giving, but then I thought you'd all be thinking we're talking about money. Uh, We're not talking about money in the slightest. We're made to give. Self-giving is a crucial part of the Christian identity. If you want to be like Jesus Christ, who gave his life for others, you've got to give yourself away. And that is for our good, as well as that for others. Uh, now, look, we're jumping into the middle of the book of Colossians, uh, and we're not, I'm not in any sense going to explain the details of this passage tonight. Uh, as I say, that's just thinking topically. But uh, let me give you uh, some little bit of context. Paul is saying here that uh, you're new and being renewed in God's image. That's what's going on. So Paul has been saying in the book of Colossians that the Christian life doesn't come, or transformation, a maturity in the Christian life doesn't come from just obeying rules. You can see that in uh, the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 23. Regulations, such as don't touch, uh, avoid. Regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So if you want to change... If you want to mature, if there's area of life you think, I'd really like to uh, get over this, uh, mature, get better in this area, anger, kindness, self-control, whatever it may be, rules are not going to do it on their own. They just don't do it. By contrast, he says, you need to know who you are. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Here's how transformation comes in the Christian life. Since then, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You live on earth, but there's a sense in which already, because you're united to Jesus Christ, you are raised with him. You belong with him, and one day physically he will take you in entirety to be with him. That's who you are. Live out that identity, not just an earthly one. I uh, read a little while ago, um, just before Christmas, an interview, uh, extended interview with Adam Peaty. You know Adam Peaty, the, uh, the Olympian, uh, the British breaststroke monster. He's just, uh, have you ever, uh, it's quite... Sad enough, my son showed me this, that's my excuse. But if you watch the Adam Peaty training regime, he's absolute monster. Uh, he's just, you know, enormous, looks like the Hulk, makes the Hulk look small, and he can swim really fast. Uh, Adam Peaty, do you know what I'm talking about? I'll just stop wibbling and get on with the point. Um, uh, it was an interview with him, and it said that back in 2012, uh, he was a good swimmer. But in 2012, he missed out on selection by a good distance, by a mile, on being part of the British Olympic team. And uh, he remembers uh, this, getting the phone call, no, you're not going to make the team. Your, your numbers are nowhere near good enough, your, your times. And he sat in the park with his mates and just got blindingly drunk. Uh, and the next day, his coach said, you're useless. You're wasting your life. You're acting like a bum. 
when you could be great. Uh, and so just walked out on him. He got a new coach, a guy called Mel Marshall, who uh, said much the same thing, but said, you are a bum. You are wasting your talent. Do you not realize what you could be? You couldn't just be good in the UK. You could be great. You have it in you to go to the Olympics and to win. You can do that. Are you willing to do that with me? Sort of inspiring, sort of. Uh, and Adam Peaty said, I thought to myself, yeah, well, I'm going to give that a go. No longer just bumming around and eating fish and chips and pies uh, and drinking beer with my mates. I'm going to go to the gym a lot and swim a lot. I'm going to be that man. And of course, within a couple of years, he's won the world championships again and again and again, won Olympic gold. He holds the 10 fastest times in history uh, for the breaststroke. He's just seconds ahead of anyone else. He's just an absolute beast of a swimmer because he's lived out that identity. Always there, always that potential. But he lived it out rather than bumming around as a drunkard. And Paul is saying something similar to us as Christians. You, you really are destined for glory. That is where you're going. And you have it in you now to change. You just need to know who you are. Live out that life as belonging to Jesus Christ rather than just messing around in this world. You've got to know who you are. Paul says to Christians, you've been remade. You get this, the metaphor comes again, really, in a slightly different form, verses 9 and 10 in this chapter. So do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You've taken off one pattern of life. You've put on another one. And you're being renewed further in the image of God. Yeah, it's a fairly obvious picture. Uh, you go to the gym or you, you, you go for heavy exercise and uh, it's pretty heavy exercise. You, you've really burned the calories and uh, you get back to the change room and you, you know, you peel the thing off and you wring it out because uh, you've really burnt off some exercise. It is minging and you sort of throw them in a pile on the floor and you go and have a shower and it's delightful and you come back out and you don't put on the minging kit again. And if you do, ooh, shame on you. Uh, you don't put on the minging kit because you're, you've changed. That was kind of okay at the end of an hour's exercise. It's kind of ran with it. But now you've changed. Now you've been washed and you're clean and you're different. Put on your suit, whatever it is. That's what he's saying here. Live differently because you are different now. That was okay. Well, not okay. That was how you were then. Now you're different. Don't go back. Know who you are. But for our purposes tonight, I just want to say two things. Uh, as I say, topically, so I'm borrowing naughtily from the passage uh, rather than expounding it as it was written. But two things, okay? Don't be shaped by your desires. Do be shaped by love. Don't be shaped by your desires. Do be shaped by love. First then, which uh, loosely is verses 5 to 8, loosely. Don't be shaped by your desires. Let me read verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these. 
anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Put to death your unworthy desires. That used to be fairly common sense, uh, or maybe not common sense, just accepted norm. Everyone would say that to one another. They may not have done it in practice, but you know, you behave, you know, don't do that. Stop that. Now, of course, this is fairly countercultural advice because the 21st century would say, go on, indulge yourself. You feel like doing that? You go for it. You want a bit of that? Quite right, too. You know, there are certain golden rules. We've mentioned them before. I think to my mind in the 21st century, thou shalt be true to yourself and not conform to any moral code placed upon you. Um, thou shalt not condemn, condemn anyone else for their lifestyle. And thirdly, as long as there's consent, yeah, go for it. Do what you like. And so this is countercultural now for the 21st century. Put to death your unworthy desires. No, 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 no. That's unhealthy, say the modern pseudo-Freudians. You must indulge all your desires to sort of deny yourself anything. Oh, that'd be desperately unhealthy for you. Ooh, go for it. Uh, indulge yourself. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Know that you belong to Christ, you belong to glory, and put your unworthy desires to death. Of course, the focus falls on two things. Verse 5 is sexual desires. Verse 8 is verbal desires. Verse 5, there's not a lot of ambiguity there. But put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, you chase the word through the New Testament, it just always means any sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Of course, our culture says sexual desires are just like any other sensory pleasures. You get thirsty, so you drink. You get hungry, so you eat. You want a bit of sex, so you indulge yourself. That's just how it is, uh, says the 21st century. And modern culture has a certain insatiable quality to it. You know, the, uh, the advertisers now, they work off seven seconds. You've got seven seconds as an advertiser to grab someone's attention and make them stay with you either at the cinema or on the telly or on the internet. Seven seconds is the industry rule because such is our short attention span, such is our desire for instant gratification. If you don't give me something in seven seconds, I'm out of here. We don't do that at church, by the way. Uh, we go for 70 minutes is generally the... Uh, um, that's how advertisers work. You've got to grab someone or they'll move on. And that carries on mentally into the sexual arena. We think, want it? I'll take it. But Paul is clear, without marriage, sex centers upon gratification of the self. Rather than self-giving, which is meant to be the Christian identity, outside of marriage, sex is gratification of the self. We live in a consumer age, and people are just viewed as consumable. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, that I thought of while um, uh, uh, dwelling on that, this, dwelling on this uh, in the week. Two examples, really, of self-gratification. Uh, the first, you've got to enjoy these. Everyone's going to squirm a little bit tonight. Just run with it. Um, uh, I was always being very struck by a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to uh, a friend 
uh, of the subject of masturbation. Very striking language. He's writing as a bloke to another bloke, all right? So you can flip it around. He could have written to a woman and just flip around the, the language in your head. It's a letter he wrote to his friend. Masturbation sends a man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. The harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices from the man, no adjustments. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover, always the hero. No demand is made on his selfishness. In the end, they become the medium in which he increasingly adores himself. No woman can rival his harem. Swap around man, woman, you can do that quite easily. But it's such a striking imagery, I think he uses. The harem. And as the letter goes on, he says, the, po- the, problem, sorry, the, the point of growing in maturity is to escape the prison of the self. But masturbation is one thing that locks you in the prison of the self. It turns you in. It's all about me. Self-gratification. So rather than having an identity as someone who gives, it's all about gratifying me. I was surprised to read a letter, quite similar lines. It was in The, um, in the Guardian uh, a few weeks ago. It's a letter. Uh, it was anonymous, but it was on the letters page, and they uh, published it uh, big. Well, that's the worst English I've ever used in this stage. Uh, in big font. You know, they, they, they blew it up. So this is the one they highlighted on the letters page. Very striking. A woman writing, a letter to my ex-husband who preferred pornography to me. It opens, porn ruined you, porn ruined us. Your love of porn slowly diminished my love and respect for you, destroyed my self-confidence. She goes on to describe the impact in fairly graphic detail, and I shall spare you that. But um, uh, despite having several children, uh, they ended up divorcing. So just let me read you the end. What came next was not easy. Tears, guilt, divorce, kids shuttled between two homes, the shockwaves extending to our family and friends. I'm in a new relationship now. It's far healthier. We have intimacy of every kind. However, you're still alone. People think it's because you haven't moved on, that you're still in love with me. You and I both know it's because relationships require effort and consideration of others' needs. The women you spend most of your time with ask for nothing. You're actually happier in your relationship with porn. No one makes demands of you. Gratification of the self. That's not right for a Christian self-identity. It's not self-giving. Do we really want to say to people, you must be true to yourself when it leaves them locked in their own selfishness, looking in? That's one area. Let me give you another area by way of example of uh, the problems with uh, self-gratification. 
his and I got uh, uh, nearly two years ago, I think. Uh, we were preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, sort of properly preaching through the whole book. And uh, we came to uh, chapter 6, which uh, has a great deal about uh, sexual immorality. Uh, here's an email I received the next day. This is miserable, just to cheer you up. Dear Matt, as I listened to the talk on sexual immorality last night, I was reassured wonderfully that Christ washes away all of our sins, all of our mistakes. However, I was also reminded of the pain that sexual sin causes. I'm struggling with the split from an ex-boyfriend of a few years ago. We were both Christians, but he insisted upon us sleeping together before marriage or declared he would have to end it because he needed sex. For months, I pointed to teaching in the Bible of how this was wrong, and we would spend hours arguing. It would end in tears, and I was fearful that I would lose him. He was my best friend. I wanted us to spend our lives together serving the Lord. I couldn't imagine marrying anyone else. But sadly, he issued an ultimatum. He said he wouldn't marry anyone he hadn't slept with, and so we had to sleep together or it was over. After five months, I gave in, despite knowing it wasn't the correct way of loving him, despite knowing this wasn't the way God wanted either of us to live. I felt guilt every time we slept together and would argue. In the end, it got too much for me, and I said I really loved him, but I couldn't sleep with him anymore. He said, okay, let's take a break. Two weeks later, he phoned me to say he'd met someone else. He'd already slept with her, and he didn't want to get back together. I was utterly broken. What a git. That's self-absorption. That's self-gratification. While you're all quiet, let me push it further and upset perhaps one or two more. You do know, don't you, that when you're engaged and have made a commitment to one another of some kind, When you're engaged and you stumble and you have sex, that is not because you love your fiancé, it's because you love yourself. That is because you want to gratify yourself. I'm sorry to say that, but you know it's true. Love says, I respect you, I want what's best for you as a Christian, therefore we shall wait. Lust says, "Uh, I just want to gratify myself. And it's kind of safe with you because we're going to do it in the future. So it's safe. So we'll just get on and do it. That is not love. That's self-absorption. It's selfishness. It's self-gratification. It's wrong. Sex is meant to be mutual submission within marriage to help seal commitment. Lust says, sex serves me. Of course, some will say, yeah, but if there's consent between two adults, it's not, it's not bad, is it? I mean, really, not that bad. I mean, yeah, they're kind of agreeing it together so that you're not beating one up. It's not, there's no imbalance, so it's sort of all right. No. I mean, it's good to have consent. Don't mishear me on that, of course. But it hurts. It's not loving. One girl who's no longer here, she's moved elsewhere, but I remember her saying it to me. Before she became a Christian, she had multiple partners. Uh, and she said, every time I slept with someone, it was as if, I guess, I was painting a layer of varnish on myself. So every time I slept with one, it made genuine intimacy that much harder. 
this sort of protective barrier came over me. Now, sex outside of marriage is gratification of the self. You get locked in the prison of yourself. You'll never grow. Don't be shaped by your desires, says Paul. But can I say that is not who you are? And if you think, yeah, I'm a bit trapped at the moment. I'm not really thinking about giving, self-giving. I am all about me and gratifying my own desires at the moment. If you're trapped, can you reach out to someone? Because it's not who you are. It's not who Christ means you to be. It's not who you should be. It's not who you can be. Can I do everything to say, reach out to someone, someone you like, someone you trust, someone who's not going to be weirded out, tell them. It breaks the hold sometimes. Don't be shaped by your desires. Positively, you ready for that? Positively. Positively, do be shaped by love. That's the second half. Do be shaped by love. Um, Verse 8 onwards. It focuses then on transformed relationships. Uh, Let me pick it up. Uh, Verse 8 again. Uh, Now you must also get rid of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. These are all obviously relational things. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Uh, Here in a church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all it is in all. Of course, his point in verse 11 is all those things are in the church, but they don't matter. There are, I don't know how many different nationalities, 20 different first languages in the church. Maybe that doubles. I can't quite work out for nationalities. Lots of people speak English and Mandarin, whatever. But um, lots of different nationalities here, but that doesn't matter, he's saying. Lots of different cultures, all one in Christ. And so he says, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, what a lovely list. There are five ugly sins in verse 8. Here are five lovely things to clothe yourselves with. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. All of them esteem others more highly than ourselves. They're all self-giving. Jesus, of course, is the one who is compassionate. Ten times he describes himself or is described in that way. The father of the prodigal son is described as compassionate. Kindness, I guess that's thinking, what do other people need? I'm not thinking about myself, I'm thinking of others. Humility, again, I'm putting others before myself. Gentleness towards others, patience towards others. Here it is then, the Christian identity is found in self-giving. Give yourself away. Two things are highlighted. Uh, In particular, verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together. Bear with and forgive. Because churches are messy places, if you haven't worked that out. Bear with and forgive. Now, wonderfully, those things, not only are they good for others, but they transform you. 
Uh, back in the summer, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, have you heard of him? He's worth a few bob. Uh, he, um, he caused a titter uh, because uh, he was talking about breakdown of community uh, in real life. And uh, he said, he made a speech publicly saying, oh, well, uh, a lot of people now, uh, uh, oh, yes, here we go. Uh, there's a gap in people's lives left by the decline of churches and other communities. People need to find a new sense of purpose and support elsewhere, and they're finding that on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, there are multiple problems with that. One, as some here would have kindly pointed out to me, Facebook, it's for old people. Thank you very much. Um, you know, oh, we wouldn't be seen dead using Facebook. Well, good for you. Um, but I guess more importantly, churches. Churches are very different from a place like Facebook, a place, a thing like Facebook, because churches are messy. When we gather together, we're not organized by algorithm. Uh, and you're not exposed only to people or ideas that have been filtered for your own likeness and desires. You encounter people who are different and unlike you and hold different political views and economic views and social views and all sorts of views. And that's strange. I remember a few years ago, uh, a, a guy, an American guy, converted and um, became a Christian. And uh, he, he was uh, from a Jewish background. And so for him, becoming a Christian was quite a big deal. And his parents were very upset that uh, he'd become a Christian. Uh, but um, for him, he said, you yeah, know, becoming a Christian, having been a Jew, was, was really hard. But sitting next to someone in church who had worked for the Republican Party, that was really weird. <laughs> And he was quite nice, uh, you know, and he'd forced this Democrat to, uh, to uh, sit next to him. How can that be? Um, because in his own, before becoming a Christian, he just, of course, lived in this little silo and just met people like him. You can't do that in church. You have to meet all sorts of people in church. You have to have your daft opinions challenged, your blind spots revealed, your rough edges smoothed off. Being part of a church family, it's great for forcing you out of the prison of self. You can't just spend time with people like you. Let me just dwell uh, for a few minutes then on, on friendships. I am uh, looking forward to the church getaway, which you have to book in by Friday, um, for, uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, one of which is uh, the guy speaking, Andy Mason, is one of my dearest friends. We've known one another uh, for decades. And uh, he's been a, a great friend for many, many reasons over the years. I asked him uh, in the week, because uh, he's more uh, insightful than me, I said, why are we good friends? Because the truth is, we don't have an awful lot in common by way of hobbies or, uh, or, or affinities. I said, why are we such good friends? He said, well, I think two things have held our friendship together over the decades. Uh, intentionality, and you know, our, friendship is, our, our friendship is intentional and spiritual, is what he said. I said, oh, go on, tell me what you mean. Uh, I think I know what you mean. Uh, it's fairly obvious. Intentional. If you can have good friends with people, you have to think about it. So he and I, we've lived all over the place. Uh, we lived in different countries for at least uh, uh, five years. Um, but we would phone one another every week. And twice a year we'd go and visit one another. Because some people you commit to. You can't do that with many. You can have two or three friends, I think, that you really seriously commit to through thick and thin and everything. You can't have huge numbers. But friendships are intentional. Whenever we met, we committed to confess our sins to one another. 
it's a fairly intentional act. Not every time, not every time in the pub uh, or anything like that. But when we had a bit of time, you know, we'd confess our sins to one another. Didn't need to ask one another questions, just be honest. Here are the things I've got wrong. Let me tell you all the embarrassment of the last week, day, whatever it was. Intentional. Are you intentional? One of the nicest uh, weddings, that's not true, every wedding is nice, uh, particularly everyone here. Um, uh, but in a former life, one of the, um, no, one of the, uh, a lovely thing, one wedding, um, a couple here, uh, the guy who was best man gave a terrific speech, but had the lovely line in it, uh, thank you for having me as your best man, thank you that our friendship has made me a better man. It's a good testament, isn't it? Knowing you has made me better. That's what you want. But you have to pursue that. You have to be intentional. Spiritual, yeah, I think that's right. You, you can't just have friendships built on a common interest. You can begin friendships that way, and often that's how they begin. Hey, you like football? I like football. You know, you like Burger King? Well, I like Burger King. Um, whatever it may be, and off you go, and uh, things roll. Uh, but you can't stay there. That's boring. Uh, and again, you never grow. You have to move beyond that. You need a spiritual friendship. A shared saviour, a common purpose, a willingness to be honest. Of course, in many ways, the, the, the most wonderful friendship described in the scriptures, certainly between uh, someone who isn't Jesus, is that of uh, Jonathan and David. It's a lovely account in um, 1 Samuel 23. David's on the run for his life being threatened with murder, all the troops are out to kill him. And Jonathan goes to him and we're told, quote, Jonathan went to find David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. That is a great friend. Because all of us have times when we need that. You travel the length of the country. At my bleakest times in life, or, you know, they come and go. But when we lost a little girl, one or two traveled the length of the country. In fact, flew from there where they were in another country to come and meet up just for an hour to help me find strength in God. That is a wonderful thing in a friendship. Uh, intentional spiritual, very briefly. Uh, porous. In a church, you need friendships which are a bit more porous as well. Every church will have people who like one another, you know, and there'll be gangs and there'll be groups and cliques, whatever you want to call them. Every church has that. Every setting, that's just normal. That's human nature. You can't do anything about that. It's a good thing. As long as they're porous, those friendships, because presumably we want our friendships and we want in our friendships to be like God. God is he is in Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. No one will ever have the intensity of friendship that those three have with one another. And yet they say, come join us. You'll never have the love that us three share, but we still want to bring you in. Come join us. And there is a model for friendship. You can safely assume that you've turned things upside down and you've made God in your image when your God only likes the people you like and dislikes the people you dislike. Then you've made God in your image. But you're being transformed into the image of God if you like people unlike you. You go to those who are different. That's being made like Christ. 
And so he says, look, bear with one another and forgive one another. There's honesty. Because often in a church setting, people are very unreasonable. They act in a way in, that is hurtful. But that's just going to happen. What are you going to do? People here will be unreasonable and people here will hurt you. What are you going to do at that point? In the small things, I'll just move on, forget it probably. Uh, in the larger things, sometimes you have to talk it through and tell them that you're upset and they need to repent. But either way, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. If you only have friends who love you perfectly, you will have no friends. Uh, one person he commented here in the congregation the other day, said, you know, I sometimes observe, uh, it was a woman, I sometimes observe, particularly some of the women, I'm sure they could say the same of men, but she's a girl talking about girls. Uh, I think some, they demand uh, more, they're less willing to forgive their friends than they would be a spouse. You know, a husband does something insensitive and they go, oh, insensitive bloke. A girlfriend does something insensitive and that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. I'm going to cut them off. It's just weird. Willing to forgive a husband, not willing to forgive a friend. Huh? And sometimes we can be like that. All your friends will let you down to a certain extent. You've got to forgive. You've got to do that. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the benchmark. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Don't be shaped by desires. Do be shaped by love. And if you're going to do those things, you do need to know how the Lord has forgiven you and how the Lord has loved you. Let me, as we finish, just ask this. You can add to this list if you want. How has the Lord forgiven you? Or how has Jesus Christ forgiven us? Well, here's some thoughts. Graciously, we didn't deserve it. We were still enemies when Christ died for us. He was proactive, graciously, undeservedly. He loves. Secondly, humbly. He never said to you or me, oh, can't believe you've done that. I would never have made that mistake. I would never have treated you in that way. He could have said that because he didn't make any mistakes. He never said that. He humbly died for us. Graciously, humbly, costly. There's always some cost, even if it's just emotional to forgiving people. Jesus was willing to pay the most extraordinary cost of dying on the cross for you and me. Fourth, patiently. His forgiveness is ongoing. Even though we continue to offend him, grieve him over and over again. He's still patient and says, yeah, I'll pay for that sin as well. Generously. He's at work in our lives to transform us. And on and on we could go. Love like him. And if you're shaped like him, your identity is found in self-giving. I hope our little month has been of some use. What does it mean to be true to self? We're truly human when we know that we're made in the image of God. For glory, for intimacy in genders, yes. And we're remade in his image for self-giving. Not self-gratification, but to give ourselves away. Jesus remakes us in that image. 
to give ourselves away. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be a Christian. And he's loved us in a way that means we can live this way. Let me pray. Let me pray. Our Father, in a moment we confess our sins and of course all of us here know that we're failures. We're moral failures. We give in to our desires. We allow them to shape us. We allow our desires to define us, which is just uh, damaging to us. We cause mayhem in the lives of others. Father, would you remind us who we are in Christ so we are not shaped by our desires. We're not at the mercy of how we feel. We are not uh, formed by the, the pressures of others upon us. But we know who we are in Christ. We're shaped by his love for us. And we give of ourselves to others. Father, and in that giving, we, we change. Uh, we, we, our, our views are challenged. Our rough edges are smoothed down. Father, would we, in a biblical sense, be true to who we are, that is made in your image, to live for your glory, enjoying intimacy with, with some who can spur us on to love you more, giving ourselves away. Father, would we know the freedom that comes from being human, living in your image, being transformed by Christ, we pray it in his name. Amen.